if you had to write a farewell letter to one much younger than you, and you could implore them to just three things, what would you write? Perhaps you're a student about to fly the nest, you think of a younger sibling, uh, one a few years behind you at school. Uh, perhaps you're a boss with retirement on the horizon and you, your mind is instantly drawn to that beloved associate who you believe could take on the business. Uh, perhaps you're even older than that and you ponder your very last breath and so what you might write to your family. If you had to write a farewell letter to one much younger than you, and you could implore them to just three things, what would you write? Well, in 2012, a few months before he unexpectedly died, James Flanagan, the New Jersey poet, decided that he would do just that. And so on the eve of his 72nd birthday, Flanagan uh, wrote a letter to his grandchildren which contained in it a number of exhortations that he wanted them to learn from his life. The letter was much celebrated in the newspapers, but particularly because of the first three things that Flanagan urged them to follow him in. Number one, he wrote, you are a wonderful gift of God to all the world. Remember it especially when the cold winds of doubt and discouragement fall upon your life. Number two, be not afraid of anyone or of anything when it comes to living your life most fully. Pursue your hopes, your dreams, no matter how different they may seem to others. And number three, remember everyone in the world is just ordinary. Some people may wear big fancy hats or have big titles or temporarily have power. Don't believe them. Question authority always. In summary, remember you are a gift of God to the world. Don't let anyone stop you having your fun and don't be afraid of any authority. Well, I wonder if you'd write the same as Flanagan. I wonder if anything has happened to you in your life that would warrant you writing something different. Or maybe you just don't really want to play the game because any final advice to any future grandchildren, well, it all just seems far off. But again, if you had to, if you had to write that letter and implore that youngster to just three things, what words would you write? What missteps would you implore them not to make what steps would you urge them to follow you in? And what would you say with your final breath? Well, if you were here with us last week, you'll remember that we all opened up such a letter. For the letter of Daniel chapter 4, the, the, the previous chapter was a final letter written by a very old man and was addressed to you and I. For Daniel chapter 4 verse 1, just one page back in your Bibles, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all people, nations, and languages that dwell upon the earth. And so the letter that we opened up together was a letter, in a sense, that was written to you and I, that we might learn the life lessons of a 6th century BC king who had the wonderful name Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, and yet I imagine, I imagine that if King Nebuchadnezzar could have had just one, just one person, read Daniel chapter 4, 
his farewell letter and final exhortations, and so follow his life lessons, I'm absolutely positive that it would have been the beloved man of Daniel 5. For in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1, we meet King Nebuchadnezzar's successor and son, King Belshazzar. And when I say successor and son, bear with me for a brief ancient history lesson. I know that some of you will be riveted by this. Others of you will uh, be bored out of your minds for just a minute. But just for the sake of historical scrupulousness, Belshazzar was actually most likely his grandson because Nebuchadnezzar's direct heir was a man named Nabidonis. And ancient history tells us that Nabidonis, at first, the fourth in line to the throne, he ran away because he seemingly didn't want to live in Babylon. Uh, and why that was, we don't know. But because of Nabidonis's long vacation, we actually know that Belshazzar existed, which for a very long time was disputed, because the only record of a Babylonian king named Belshazzar was in Daniel chapter 5, and so many thought this whole chapter wasn't really worth paying attention to because it was just some ghost story. But in 1854, a clay cylinder of Nabidonis was, was found, which you can see at the British Museum, and it contained on a prayer, which interestingly said this, as for Belshazzar, the eldest son and the offspring of my heart, instill reverence of your great divinity and let not sin possess his heart. Accordingly, in tandem with other ancient artifacts that were either dug up by British people, or let me be honest, stolen by British people, we know that Belshazzar co-reigned in Babylon with his father at the time of Daniel chapter 5, which actually explains at verse 29 that Daniel is oddly going to be stated as the third ruler in the kingdom because of his promotion that would have seen him co-rule Babylon with father and son, Nebadonis and Belshazzar. Anyway, with the history lesson over, can you see why? Can you see why? The humbled King Nebuchadnezzar would have absolutely longed for Belshazzar, the heir to his throne and his very grandson, to have read all about his life lessons. Indeed, in light of all that we read last week about his spectacular rise and fall, you can imagine every member of the royal family imploring the young man to sit down and to, and to listen to that rise and fall podcast. To the grandson of chapter 5, might take heed of the granddad of chapter 4, and so point 1 might follow a humbled king's final breath. Point 1 this morning, follow a humbled king's final breath. And so, in the intervening 25 years or so, in between uh, Daniel chapter 4 and, uh, and Daniel chapter 5, did it happen? Did grandson Bell get to hear the final breath, the testimony, the, the, the letter, the wise warnings of Grandad Neb? Well, what do you think? Well, the obvious answer is yes. And for at least three reasons. Well, firstly, because the events of his granddad in chapter four would obviously have never been forgotten. Indeed, you can imagine them, can't you? The royal family sitting down at Christmas and, and laughing. Do you remember that time when, when Grandad lived on the farm, grew his hair to eagle feather length, when his fingernails were like bird's claws. Grandad's seven years of madness was undoubtedly the playground talk of every Babylonian boy that Belshazzar grew up with. But that was not all. 
For as we've already thought about, Nebuchadnezzar was not shy in letting people know that, about his humiliating conversion story and what he came to see about God. For chapter 4 is a letter to be read, remember, to the whole world. King Nebuchadnezzar's last words were to go viral, like James Flanagan's life lessons. They were to be printed in the newspaper. His final advice was to be tweeted and retweeted, blogged about, posted on Facebook, YouTube, Instagrammed. But ultimately, we know that King Belshazzar had opportunity to follow a humble king's final breath because this is exactly what Daniel tells us here. Indeed, if you skip to the very center of a story, you will hear old man Daniel, now in his 80s, once right-hand man of the deceased king, King Nebuchadnezzar, retelling the story of his old boss and rebuking the young King Belshazzar, end of verse 22, with four devastating words. You knew all this. You knew all this. His grandfather's history in chapters 1 to 3 were there to, to teach him. His grandfather's humbling in chapter 4 had been for his benefit. For unlike so many Christians who reach old age and and kind of want to hide all the most foolish things that they did when they were young so that they can preserve some kind of flawless view of themselves in the eyes of their grandchildren and so their families can say sweet nothings about them at their funeral. Unlike that, King Nebuchadnezzar was happy to air all his folly for the sake of the next generation of believer. For he loved his grandson too much, too much not to share with him all the deep sins of his past and his incessant failure to love God well. So just like Flanagan, though granddad's letter had been aired to the world, his last words were actually aired for Belshazzar. And so what were his closing exhortations to his grandson? Well, as we look back in Daniel, we see that there were three. And the first of these, subpoint one, was trust not in the pride of youth. Trust not in the pride of youth. In verse 18, look with me. Daniel reminds Belshazzar of what? Well, he reminds him of what his grandfather was like when he was a boy. God gave his grandad great power as a young man over people and nations and languages, verse 19, over life and death even. But verse 20, when his granddad's heart was proud, when he said those infamous words of Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power all for my glory, God removed all the glory of his youth and he brought him down from the throne room to the field. And yet just 25 years later, on this fateful night, how closely is Belshazzar following the humbled king? Well, having laid that significant foundation, what does King Belshazzar do? Chapter 5. Well, in verse 1, we find the young man having a a, a big bash. It's a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And the fresh-faced king is just having a fine time. He has a glass of wine in his hand with all his best buddies in government. And so from verse 1 alone, the succession plan seems to be rather sunny. For his grandfather's final words were certainly not, don't have any fun. However, as we, as we read on, 
we soon realize that, that King Belshazzar was not just having uh, afternoon tea and champagne in the royal hanging gardens. Well, verse 2 exposes the fact that this feast is actually some kind of college Halloween slash spring break orgy. Verse 2, we learn that Belshazzar's many wives are there, and that so too are his concubines. We may read prostitutes. And that moreover, that this attention-seeking frat boy king is so desperate to get himself recognized in some sort of audacious viral TikTok video that he does some kind of Halloween spin-the-bottle dare and he orders his guards to get the holy cups of Jerusalem, the holy cups that his grandfather removed from the temple, and to take these holy offerings of the Lord God Almighty out of their display cabinets so that he can show off in full view of a thousand and tell them who is back to being boss of this great city now. The contrast but between two royal commands in, in just two verses apart is stunning, isn't it? What are some of the last words that King Nebuchadnezzar breathes? End of Daniel chapter 4. Honor the king of heaven, whose dominion is forever. For those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What are some of the last words of King Belshazzar that he breathes? Start of Daniel chapter 5. Honor me essentially, glory in me. Get me the supposed holy cups from the house of God that we may laugh at my inane spiritual upbringing that I may grip the neck of the Lord's glass and so hold the holy one in my powerful young hands. Friends, whether it is done in such a public and outrageous way as this, or whether we smugly toast ourselves in the privacy of our own homes, thinking that we have taken hold of life and that we are done with God. One of the prevailing warnings of Daniel is the grave danger of a proud trust in self and the proud thought that we've got a grip on life and God, which is often displayed in the bravado of youth. Well, friends, if I may speak for a moment to those who are younger, and the majority here, in Daniel, time and time again, we see that there is a special danger of proud thoughts against God that comes when you are a young man or you are a young woman. Indeed, there is a frightening capacity to stand against God in, in teenage years and into our 20s and early 30s in a way that does not happen later in life. For please note here that it is no coincidence that the holy vessels of God proudly pickpocketed by Nebuchadnezzar when he was a young man in chapter 1 are now the same holy vessels proudly produced when Balthazar is a young man in chapter 5. You see, there is a unique pride that often comes out only when we are young and strong and beautiful that makes us think that we may stand against the holy faith of generations past that allows us to scoff at a holy Bible, that allows us to roll our eyes as people sing in church, holy, 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 that allows us to scoff at the thought of living a holy life. Friends, the capacity to stand 
against the holy things of God. When you stand with a drink in your hand at the college Halloween or spring break party is not quite the same as when you sit down decades on with a few old mates from college having been sobered by the hardships of life. And that is because God in his kindness, God in his kindness allows human pride to fade slowly with our beauty and with our strength and with the realization over time that our glory days are brief. The New Jersey rock star, Bruce Springsteen, the so-called boss, now age 72, now the same age as the New Jersey poet James Flanagan was when he died, sang of it like this. I had a friend who was a big baseball player back in high school. He could throw that speedball by you, make you look like a fool. I saw him the other night at this roadside bar. I was walking in, he was walking out. We went back inside, sat down, had a few drinks, but all he kept talking about was glory days. Well, they'll pass you by glory days. In the wink of a young girl's eyes, glory days. And there's a girl that lives up the block. Back in school, she could turn all the boys' heads. Sometimes on a Friday, I'd stop by and I'd have a few drinks after she'd put her kids to bed. Her and her husband, Bobby, well, they split up. I guess it's two years gone by now. We just sit around talking about the old times. She says that when she feels like crying, she starts laughing, thinking about glory days. Well, they'll pass you by glory days. In the wink of a young girl's eyes, glory days, glory days. Friends, if you are young and living those glory days now, well, please enjoy them. Because that's what the word says. Ecclesiastes 11.9, O young man in your youth, rejoice and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Enjoy life, but do not stand proudly against a holy God, thinking that you will avoid punishment if you stand against his purity. And so my young friend here this morning, although I know it's really hard often to do so, look ahead, look ahead, and do not proudly scoff at the idea that God is holy. Do not proudly scoff at the idea that, that he demands holiness just because you have the biggest baseball pitch or can turn all the boys' heads right now. Instead, seek maturity. Consider if you would have the same arrogance if you were the same age as the so-called boss, the same age as a fading 1980s rock star whose glory days are well and truly over because, well, you've never even heard of Bruce Springsteen. My young friends, do not sacrifice. Do not sacrifice the everlasting glory of the Lord for the sake of a perceived few days of glory that will pass by in the wink of a young girl's eyes. Instead, listen. Listen to the last words of an old man. Follow a humble king's final breath. Trust not in the pride of youth. Well, that was the first exhortation of his granddads, that, that Belshazzar managed to spectacularly discard with one of his own final exhortations. But perhaps, 
Perhaps Balthazar's next breath would be better. And so verse 3, look down with me. Let's see what it is. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What does Balshazzar's latest breath convey? Well, after clearing his throat with some more wine, he then says grace in the banqueting hall, and he praises false gods for their provision of it. Which obviously ran in, in direct contrast to following the final words of his humbled grandfather. For the final words of his once idolatrous grandfather were trust not in the provision of God. Subpoint two, trust not in, in the provision of gods. But when Nebuchadnezzar became like, like a beast of the field, at what point, at what point was he allowed to return to his throne? Well, if you remember from Daniel 4, three times it was repeated. When? When you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar could only come back home when he'd come to see that God had given him his home. His realization in Daniel 2, at the start of life, truly your God is the God of gods, had to be really known by the end. And so Nebuchadnezzar's final exhortation to his grandsons was a far cry, wasn't it, from James Flanagan's. For with his last breath, Nebuchadnezzar did not say, remember, you are a gift to the world, but rather remember that you have been given gifts by God in the world. Remember that God is the one who made you, that the one who has provided you with everything, so trust him. But Balthazar, well, he's just desperate to hit the cut and paste button, isn't he? On the Sunday school lessons that he learned as a little boy, he cuts out the, the one true creator God, and he pastes in a, a pantheon of material gods who he can spend his whole life just avoiding, depending on whether he's in an iron mine or a forest. Like one who turns to Hinduism or Buddhism so that he may live without one rule giver. With his latest breath, he proudly rejects the notion that God has given him anything at all. Which brings us to Balthazar's last breath. And so the final thing in which he trusts, the fingers of a human hand appear on the wall, verse 5, the king is, is speechless for a few moments, but, but what does his next breath convey? Verse 7, look with me. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and shall have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Sound familiar? Where are we in Daniel? Well, we might as well be all the way back to chapter 2, verse 2. Because this is exactly what Balthazar's granddad did when he was afraid, when he was spooked in the night as a teenage king. For when Nebuchadnezzar had a bad dream, if you remember, he trusted in all the possessions of an earthly life. He trusted in the degree certificates of the learned. He trusted in the philosophy books of the wise. And he trusted in his own earthly possessions of power and precious metals that he would be able to pay for the peace that he craved. And where was such peace to be found in the end. What did the humbled Nebuchadnezzar finally say 
Well, again, Daniel 4, we saw that peace only came to the king when he stopped trusting in the possessions of earth. Indeed, only when the meat was stripped from, from, from the royal table and he ate the grass of the field, and only when his mind was stripped of worldly wisdom and he had the mind of a beast, and only when his body was stripped of those purple robes and he wore the dew of heaven did he find the king of heaven who brought him peace and true rest. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, he wrote to Belshazzar, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show you the why, that the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. Can you see the, the king's third and final exhortation intertwined through every page we've looked at on Daniel? Balthazar, remember, remember that in this life, peace cannot be purchased by earthly possessions. If you want to rest in this often scary world, you need to call in the man who knows the sovereign God and who holds out his word and not mere men who hold out earthly wisdom. So point three then, trust not in the possessions of earth. Trust not in the possessions of earth. And yet that's exactly what Balthazar continues to trust in. Or even when Daniel comes in with God's word. Did you notice there? Balthazar is there and he's bent on handing out his very best. Purple robes and precious metals and a bit more power. No wonder Daniel begins verse 17 so bluntly. Let your gifts be for yourself. For wise old Daniel had learned the lesson of this book. He knew that trusting earthly possessions only deafens you to the peace that a sovereign God offers in his word. He knew that trusting earthly possessions only deafens you to the peace that a sovereign God holds out in his word. And so Belshazzar, with his three final words here, incredibly manages to reject and refute and kind of reverse each of Nebuchadnezzar's final three words. He will not follow a humble king's final breath. Indeed, he will do the very opposite. He will trust in the pride of youth, and he will trust in the provision of the gods, and he will trust in the possessions of earth. In spite of the fact that Balthazar had the, the privilege of converted family members, just like many here today, in spite of the fact that, the, that Belshazzar had the privilege of a, of a godly upbringing like many here today, he rejects the testimony of changed lives. And he rejects the testament of God's word. And he rejects all the tales from Sunday school. And the grandson rolls up and burns the precious word of granddad, lighting his final exhortations like a cigar to himself. And so what happens next? Well, if, if he will not hear the final breath of his grandfather and will not read the final words of a humble king written down in the pages of history, he has to hear the final breath of his greater father and must read the final words of a heavenly king who holds his breath in his hands, written on the very wall in front of him. Second point, which completes the big idea. Follow a humble king's final breath for 
the heavenly king holds your fleeting breath. For the heavenly king holds your fleeting breath. It's kind of easy to laugh at the hand on the wall, isn't it? It's easy to imagine some kind of a cheap Halloween prop. It's easy to chuckle and think of The Thing, an Adam's Family TV show, if you remember that. But what happens here in verse 5 onwards is, is genuinely frightening. Indeed, when the divine hand appears and, and writes on the palace wall and the king sees it, look at verse 6, that the king's color changes. A face that, that moments ago was, was flushed red with much wine and roaring laughter at God's expense is now pale white, and it aches with fright as his body starts to, to send blood to his vital organs. And verse 6, the king's mind, filled with pleasure seconds ago, now rings in pain with a profound panic. Indeed, verse 6, we, we learn that his, his limbs give way. Literally, in the original, his knots were loosened. Basically, his, his intestinal ties were unfastened, that the sheer horror and dread and fear sends this young man running to the restroom. And in one sense, what while seeing that this proud king running to the restroom it is kind of entertaining, and while seeing his knees now, now knock together like some sort of Scooby-Doo villain getting his comeuppance, is rather funny. If we're reading it rightly, there's real history, then this scene is deeply disturbing. Indeed, can you hear that the terror in the king's voice, in your, in your mind's ear, as he screams and bawls for his wise men to read the writing? Friends, there is something here that goes far beyond some kind of comedy Halloween hand. For this is pure horror. And it's meant to be. And it is meant to be one of the most terrifying pictures in the whole of human history. For as Daniel proclaims to the king, verse 23, look with me. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and in whose are all your ways you have not honored. Not, not only did Balthazar disregard the final breaths of his grandfather, but Balthazar uses his final breaths to dishonor the very one who holds his breath. Moments ago, he clasped the, 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 with strong earthly hands and around the neck of the, of the goblets in the temple, and he tries to squeeze the life out of God. And now he realizes that God has his eternal hands around the neck of his throat in the palace, and that all he has to do is squeeze. And this particular time, with this particular king, God does squeeze. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was three decades, and then graciously faith. For Balthazar, it was just three denials, and then fatality. For the grandson who declined the three warning messages from granddad, 
is delivered three judgment messages from God. Verse 25, look with me. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel and parson. Three words, the first of which meant, sub point one, time up. Time up. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You know, no doubt that, that, that very evening, as Balthazar got ready for wild celebrations and picked out all his party clothes, he had no idea that he was picking out the clothes for his very funeral. And yet he was. His time was up. Indeed, the repetition of the word many suggests that there were just a few grains of sand in his hourglass. Friends, I wonder how many grains of sand are in each of our hourglasses. For some, that the gray hairs or the lack of any hair, the wrinkles and the crow's feet are a little bit like the word many scribbled on the mirror of our bathroom wall. But for others here, who did not ache when they arose for church this morning, well, they should be warned by the mirror of God's word. For those here who look like beautiful young Balthazar and perhaps feel indestructible this morning, who knows when your final evening will be? J.C. Ryle, uh, the bishop, a bishop in England in the 1800s, once wrote a whole book, a whole book, about Christian living to the young men of his day. And in the opening few pages of that book, he told them why he wrote a book just to them. And Ra said this, I write, for death and judgment wait for young men, even as it waits for others. And they nearly all seem to forget it. Young men, it is appointed for you to die. And no matter how strong and healthy you may be now, the day of your death is perhaps very near. I see young people sick as well as the elderly. I bury youthful corpses as well as the aged. I read the names of persons no older than yourselves in every graveyard. And yet you live as if you were sure that presently you will never die. Listen, tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are, or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. Oh, give no place to the devil in this matter. For not all men live to be elderly fathers. Many children die before their fathers. David had to mourn the death of his two finest sons. Job lost all of his ten children in one day, and your lot might be like one of theirs. And when death comes... It will be vain to talk of tomorrow. You must go to God at once. First breath of God to the man whose breath he holds time's up. Second breath of God to the one whose breath he holds time to be weighed. Time to be weighed. Verse 27, tackle. Tackle, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. To be weighed is never a pleasant thought, is it? Uh, we cry about being weighed from our very first moments when the, the midwife unceremoniously dumps us into the scales and we're without our mum for the first time. But the weighing spoken of here was, was not a weighing to be done at the start of 
Belshazzar's life, but rather at the end of it. And the measurements of that weighing were not to be done in, in pounds and ounces or any other Babylonian measurement, but rather in the universal measurement of holiness. And as a result, the weighing spoken of here was far more frightening than any weighing which he may have managed on earth. For it spoke of him being weighed by a holy God. Indeed, Balthazar's words and actions and thoughts throughout his whole life had already been weighed. And in the measurement of holiness, and had been found wanting. With all the, the appetite of a young man, and with all the spiritual food that he was given, he should have grown fat in holiness. But Belshazzar is found to be badly underweight, as the scales of divinity read wanting in holiness. And for Balthazar, it's too late. It's too late to pack on the pounds, to be ready for a chilling meeting with the God that he has frozen out all his life. Friends, though, that the thought it is a deeply alarming one. The word tekel is written in God's hand. And it is a word that should cause every one of us to lose the color from our faces and to see our knees buckle in fear. And yet the Bible tells us that it's not just a thought. For you and I will all be weighed by God. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment. Can you see, even if we live a very long time, the divine scales await every single one of us. We may go through all of life with the final words of James Flanagan in our heads, don't be afraid of any authority. But the truth is, is at the end of life, there is an authority of which it will be foolish not to fear. For it is the one who says, mene, time up, tackle, time to be weighed. And finally, the one who says, parson, time to die. Final point this morning, time to die. Verse 28, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians, and so, verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. In his sovereignty, God brought evil granddad Neb to repentance and faith, and his kingdom was completely restored. In his sovereignty, God brought evil grandson Baal to judgment, and his kingdom was completely ruined. But friends, the purpose of these two kings' final breath is obviously not for us to just hope that we are a granddad Neb. The purpose is to ensure that we will not be a grandson Baal. For the clear sovereignty of God in bringing one to repentance and bringing one to judgment is not to convey the idea that we just do nothing. For this is too frightening a tale to just ignore. And because whether we make it to 18 or 80, one day the writing shall be on the wall for us all. One day our time will be up. One day it will be time for us to be weighed. One day we will be judged by God for all that we have done. So what are we to do? And as I've already shared, we have to be like Nebuchadnezzar, 
And if we are to follow the breath of the humble king, then we will not trust in the pride of youth, and we will not trust in the provision of gods, and we will not trust in the possessions of earth. And yet, is is a zealous following of our grandparents in the faith enough? It is a heartfelt sorrow for all the proud sins of our youth enough when we consider that divine weighing. Surely, surely if we are honest enough, we all know that we will still be found wanting, just like those kings. And so what is the hope for people like you and me? For those who often fail to listen to God's warnings, maybe as some of you have already done this morning, for those who fail to follow the ways of the faithful, for those who know that their time will be up soon, that their weighing awaits, that the holy storm of judgment beckons. Friends, the only hope for people like you and for people like me is the final breath of the King of Heaven. The final breath of the King of Heaven. The only hope of you and I possibly riding out that coming storm of final judgment is found in the final breath of the King of Heaven. For what were the last words of the King who took the sour cup of all human pride and all human idolatry and all human materialism? What were the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he breathed his last? John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And what was finished? On that night, even more sour than than Belshazzar's feast, when God's true king breathed his very last, the answer was that the wrath of God was finished. The cup of judgment was drained to its very dregs. Friends, for those of us who trust in the King, humbled for us, all the words on the wall of judgment are wiped away. And the Christian's time will not be up. And the Christian's weighing shall bring with it no fear or want, for we shall be laden with the weight of Christ's holiness. Yes, we will die. And yes, we will lose our dwelling place here and be judged by God. But in Christ, we shall receive a kingdom that shall be better than any Babylonian king could ever dream. Friends, whether you are young here this morning or whether you are old here this morning, whether your life is one of much partying or not, the writing is on the wall for us all. And the storm of judgment is coming for you. And it is as inescapable as that Medo-Persian army of 539 BC. But with the final words of the King of Heaven, we have a certain hope. We have one we can trust. When we draw our very last breath when we see God on his judgment thrown at the end, we find safety in Christ 
the king of all ages. Let us pray. Father, we see ourselves here. We see ourselves here in the proud King Belshazzar. And Father, in our honest moments, we see the writing on the wall for us all. And so, Father, would we also see the true King, the true King of heaven, the one whose last breath saved us from your wrath. Father, would you help us to hide in him and him alone. We pray this for your glory and our good. Amen.